Hello, Johnny Cullen here, welcoming you to the second season of My Favourite Game. It was just a few short months ago that I welcomed on 10 people from the UK games industry, journalists and personalities alike, to talk about their favourite game. Just a few short months later, it's time for season 2. This time, as well as personalities and journalists, I've invited on a couple of developer folk to talk about why they have their favourite games, respectively, as well as the design process behind them in some aspects, and, of course, their own little things that they are cooking up. Why wouldn't I bring them on if I didn't talk about their stuff? It's still the same episode series run that you've come to know from Season 1, but with a couple of episodes running longer than usual. So sit back... Relax and enjoy season two of My Favourite Game, which kicks off with, quite frankly, my favourite game. Okay, it isn't my own favourite game. Not anymore, anyways, but it used to be my favourite game. And it's still a game that means a lot to me, even now. I mentioned this in part during season one, but I was recording season one during a very rough part of my life. My mum died while I was uh, wrapping up season one. And there was one game... That got me through everything that happened. Um, it was already a special game beforehand, but after everything that's happened, it now stands out even more so as a very, very special game. And it's why, today, of all days, on the 10th anniversary of its release, that we couldn't have a pass without it being the season premiere of My Favourite Game Season 2. So without further ado, enjoy the second season of My Favourite Game, and enjoy the kick-off. Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater with Lee Alexander. Enjoy! Lee Alexander, what is your favourite game? My favourite game is Metal Gear Solid 3. And silence through the night What a thrill I'm searching and I'll melt into you What a fear in my heart But you're so supreme
Let's see. I've been playing games since I was really little. There's like a picture of me using a Commodore 64 at like the age of two or three years old. My father uh, was a technology journalist. He ran the home technology column at the Boston Globe, where I grew, which is the capital of the state where I grew up. And uh, yeah, that meant uh, even at that time, the the idea of technology in the home in like 1984 or whatever was was pretty novel. And so you'd see video games kind of being written about or thought about or purchased in the same way that you'd see a, a VCR or a hi-fi. You know, it was all kind of part of the same, you know, milieu or whatever, if that's the right word. But um, yeah, so we had a lot of computers in the home and a lot of software. And I was, you know, encouraged to play with them and learn them. You know, my, my father really instilled in me a sense of wonder around technology and what was possible with just a few simple inputs on a keyboard so I grew up playing a lot of adventure games um and not like point and click ones I mean the ones where you type in commands and there's like two color graphics and, and ah. things like that yeah so I grew up I grew up with a, with a computer and uh and then later with a mac where I played a lot of hypercard stacks and point and clicks and um we were constantly getting you know shareware cds in the mail of you know in, independent black and white games and Basically, every day after school was kind of some miraculous roulette wheel where I'd grab something new and weird that had just come into our house and, and, and try to figure out if there was something fun in it for me. And, um, yeah, we started getting consoles when I got older. Um, interestingly enough, in the 90s, even after my father, he, he stopped writing about home tech and started writing about computer security and hackers and viruses when, when that was a new topic. But we were still always getting free hardware in the mail. <laughs> like, we, like, that would not happen today. Like, I, I cannot get you know, compensated hardware from people easily. Now, even if I can prove that, you know, I'm definitely going to be writing about it in all these venues. Um, but yeah, they just, so, they never got the memo. We got a lot of Game Boys. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I kind of had a charmed childhood. Um, you know, we weren't especially financially well off, but I was surrounded by gadgets and software, both commercial and indie, just by nature of, of my father's work. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I, there's never a time in my life when I wasn't playing games. It was how I played pretend. It was how I socialized. Um, I would, you know, invite my girlfriends over after school with me, and we'd all gather around the monitor and uh, try to solve these adventure games or these puzzles uh, together and finish the story or see the ending or beat the boss. You know, th those were collaborative things that I did with the other kids that I played with. Um, what kind of uh, adventure games were you playing at that time? So I have this series now called Lo-Fi Let's Play, which is a, a video series that I do on YouTube where I revisit a lot of these games. They're games from the early, you know, games from the 80s that were on floppy disks on my Apple II and my Apple IIe. Um, I mean, you would have never heard of any of them today, like Escape from Rungistan or uh, Kabul Spy or I don't know. Like there was some of the very early Sierra games were part of that movement, like Mystery House and The Wizard and the Princess. Um, they were, you know, they they would have you know, some pictures and some really simple graphics and you would have to type like unlock door, open door. Um, it was actually, it was a really interesting design vocabulary that's kind of lost to the winds today. I have, you know, I have, a, oddly, I have a few strategy books that were written during that time about how to solve these adventure games and what you could and couldn't tell about the game environment from a one or two line description, um, you know, where death was common and inventory and object collection was, was the norm or, or was a primary interaction mechanic. So yeah, I, tons of those, tons. I had hundreds of them. Can you put a ballpark on how many of them you had? Uh, 
It's tough to do. I mean, it feels like I had like one or 200, but it might have been more like 50 or 60. It was a very small computer games industry at the time. <laughs> ah, fair enough. Um, so how, how did you get into the industry side of things then? Um, well, I, I was, I was going to be an actress. That was my plan A. Ah. <laughs> Um, no, so like I, I'd been involved in theater all my life. I'd done some commercials as a child and, and done some small things in movies throughout my childhood. And I was always in a play and I went to school for theater, um, which I love and, and which honestly I, I still wasn't a total waste because I think that the art of understanding how to inhabit a character and how to make choices within a fantasy space um, is not that disparate or not that different from what we do with video games. But yeah, I moved to New York City. I went to a prestigious acting school and... Uh, when I graduated, I don't know exactly what I expected, but I think that the reality of having a career as an actor was quite, you know, came as, it came as a surprise to me how far that was off from the joy of performing in a little black box on a stage. You know, I, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't really equipped to like do the, having a few different jobs with odd hours and constantly being ready to audition. You know, I wanted my comfort and stability more, I guess. I was working in offices and that was easier for me because I had computer skills. Um, so I kind of was like, well, what's something that I can do that uses my skill set that would allow me the time to go on auditions and stuff? So I was like, oh, I'll be a freelance writer. Like writing is something else that I'm good at. And I was like, well, what's the, what's the second thing? You know, what could I write about? You know, and I was like, well, I like video games. Let me do that. And it was like 2005 or 2006 or something. And even though it was a time where you could still somehow derive a career as a writer from starting a blog, I think if anyone had told me, you know, what the video games writing landscape was actually like or how hard it would have been for me, I, uh, or how hard it should have been for me, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have tried it, you know, but I was like, oh, yeah, this just seems like something I can do that I'd be good at. And I guess looking back, I think some of my lack of prior literacy was what made my voice interesting to people. Not that I didn't have prior literacy with games, but that I wasn't speaking the language of other game sites. And um, there weren't many women at the time either. So I think, you know, for better or for worse, that made a lot of people curious about my perspective. So I don't know, I just, I, I started writing a blog and people started linking to my blog and um, eventually people, you know, would publish my features when I pitched them. And um, at one point, Simon Carlos was like, uh, we don't know anybody in New York besides you. Do you want to go to this like boring educational games conference and write about games for change. And I was like, hell yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> like I said yes to a lot of things that no one else was interested in because, you know, I didn't have a, a thought in my mind about what games coverage was supposed to look like. Like I didn't really care whether or not I went to E3. I just wanted to write about games and interview game developers. And I was willing to do that wherever the opportunity came up. So yeah, I, I wrote, I went there and I filed a four page feature on the same day and then Simon ended up hiring me to do news and stuff at Gamasutra back in 2007 or so. And I was publishing this weird game set watch column about hentai games and stuff. Because <laughs> I, yeah, I was really, I was drawn to writing about the stuff that wasn't commonly being talked about. And for example, like with hentai games, I think, you know, the fact that I had a woman's perspective sort of made it a little easier for me to deal with some kinds of content that would have seemed weird coming from dudes. So I kind of, I, I maximized the thing. There were things that I could do that other people couldn't do and there were things that I was willing to do that other people were not that interested in and between those two things you know I I eventually started getting jobs and I was incredibly ambitious and I was incredibly prolific and I worked my face off um to where I am now where you know after I I eventually became the director at Gamasutra then I left and I worked at Kotaku for a while and then um I guess for the past three years I've been freelance um where I you know do some part-time stuff for Gamasutra but I, I work for a number of other outlets as well, and I've started publishing books. Um, 
I write, you know, little eBooks and I sell them directly to my readership and, and people seem to respond well to those. So that's another thing that I do. Um, yeah, that's long story short, how I got into it. And <laughs> um, well, it's, it's much, much deserved as well, especially if you're, uh, covering hentai games. Thank you. I, I would, I, I would hate if people thought I hadn't deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> Although, to be fair, anyone who covers hentai games pretty much deserves anyone's respect. (laughs) It was was really a a long, long time ago, but I think, in a weird way, that had something in common now, you know, not in terms of the content, but with with the games of my childhood, I was always digging up the weird things from the bottom of our software closet. You know, I wasn't interested in things that looked conventional or things that looked like space invaders. I was, you know, drawn to the fantasy pictures or the weird illustrations on the box. And in a way, finding hentai games in the annals of the late 90s and early 2000s internet kind of had that same sense of discovery. Like, I found something weird and I'm kind of doing something that I'm not supposed to be doing. And that sense of Mine, plowing into something strange and, and mining it is something that's always been attractive to me about games. So I guess, you know, a lot of ways I'm, I've always been motivated by the same type of things. Right, that's Jump and Dip, your favourite game, and a game that is very, very, very close to me, um, Metal Metal Gear Solid 3, Snake Eater, yeah. um, so, like, did you play any of the first two games beforehand, of it, or, like, I, uh, I, I would yeah, just... Yeah, I did, I, di- I didn't play the MSX ones, um, but I played the first Metal Gear Solid and the second Metal Gear Solid, um, I don't, honestly, at this point, I can't remember if I played them in order, or when I played Metal Gear 3, rel- relative to the other ones, ah. I think... I mean, if I'm being honest, I think it was more like I kind of overlooked them at first because, you know, it has that, like, you know, the earlier ones had that gunmetal color palette and, uh, you know, just dudes doing army stuff. And it's really easy for me to develop a blind spot toward that. So I think I kind of just, like, let my boyfriend play it. I mean, as I said, games were always a part of whatever relationships I had with people, whether those were romantic relationships or friendships. And so a lot of my favorite gaming memories are watching other people play stuff or, you know, taking turns with someone. So I I feel like MGS was kind of like a background franchise to me. And it was three that really, um, really drew me in, I think for a number of reasons, but it sounds weird to say about a Kojima game, but I really liked the story. (laughs) Like I really liked the story. Um, and I really like the character. I really like Big Boss. Um, I, uh, I was really drawn to that. And I think, you know, when Americans reach a certain age and they develop a certain wider awareness about America's role in the rest of the world, we start to get interested in those uh, stories of pathos around patriotism or like, for a 20-year-old American, like, ah, oh, maybe patriotism is not the best thing ever, is like a revelatory uh, moral punctuation, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, so this thing about the nuance and the complexity of, of duty and in, in wartime, uh, I think I found it really uh, emotional and mature at that time in my life, and especially for a video game. Um, I liked 
that it was almost more ambitious than it could execute on. I like that about all of Kojima's work. Like, I like albums that are like that. I like books that are like that. And, um, yeah, and it's also just, it's really excellent to play. Um, it's like learning piano or violin or something with the finger picking. There's, there's a certain elegance that you need to possess in order to do a no-kill game of MGS3, um, which I routinely challenge myself to do. And I would play the game more if I didn't have a zero-tolerance policy for kills. Like, if my finger slips or I forget what weapon I'm holding, I have to start all over again. And at, th- at this point in my life, when I'm used to autosaves happening, like, I'll be like, oh, shoot, I killed that guy. I'll just reload. Wait, no, that I last saved two hours ago. Awesome. <laughs> so I'll just, I'll, I rage quit it all the time now. But um, it's very important to me to, to get the pigeon rank when I play. In fact, I have a tattoo on my wrist of the pigeon rank icon, um, which is probably the nerdiest thing about me. Um, but I think that it represents the idea that... So the, th- the thing I like most about MGS3 is that it is a game about war, but in order to... You know, the most skillful MGS player is a complete pacifist. Um, like, you know, it, it measures your skill based on who you don't kill. And I think that's a really attractive idea that an avoidance of conflict can actually be incredibly skillful and elegant. And we occasionally, you know, we often equate pacifism pacifism with passivity. Um, We say that if you're not confrontational, you must just not be able to handle it or something. But it's incredibly difficult to complete MGS3 with no kills and including the bosses and to get all the things. Um, So I kind of like that message. So I went and got a pigeon tattoo. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just to slightly touch back on Metal Gear Solid 2. So um, I'm not sure if you are aware of this, but um, for those listening, um, Metal Gear Solid 2 was going to be named initially Metal Gear Solid 3. And there's a reason behind that. Um, It was going to be called Metal Gear Solid 3, not in a numerical sense, as in the number 3, but the Roman uh, numeral 3 to represent the three tallest skyscrapers in Manhattan. Really? Yes, that, that's according to the uh, game and design. Not the th- and, and not the three sons of Big Boss. I mean, everything is always about something. But... Oh, yeah. but like, th- yeah. Uh, yeah, this is from the um, design document that came out uh, a couple of years ago for MGS2. That was translated a while back. So, um, yeah, that was an interesting tidbit I managed to find out about the game. It quite, kind of fascinated me about it. Um, just to stay on MGS2, um, obviously MGS2, before release, the hype was massively substantial, um, whereas MGS3, after everything that happened, it, it felt like it was less hyped. Yeah, I don't, honestly, to this day, I don't really care about hype, like, I don't go, I, don't, I really don't go to E3, and I don't follow the marketing cycles of video games that closely like I've always been a fan of video games who never participated in the culture in that exact way like I you know obviously I'd get stoked over a new Final Fantasy or something but um yeah I don't remember so much I don't remember so much how people felt about those games at the time anymore I remember how I and my friends felt about him but um I mean I, I the reaction that I remember having to Metal Gear 3 was like you know I think it was the right amount of self-indulgence. I think it was the perfect or the most perfect or the most whole representation of what Kojima wants to do with video games. Because in a sense, he keeps telling the same story over and over. Um, In a sense, he keeps doing the same themes and the same plot uh, repeatedly from several different angles as if he's kind of wiggling around in this small space and not satisfied with it. Um, But I thought that MGS3 was probably the 
the most well-balanced um, achievement, you know, in that regard. And I, I remember feeling that, I remember feeling pleasantly surprised by it, that it was really rich and grounded and didn't try my patience too much in terms of the very difficult, hard to follow nonsense plot stuff. Like I'm not, I really, I'm not the biggest MGS2 fan at all. Um, I mean, I don't, I actually don't find it like as pleasant to play. Like I, I uh. don't like how Raiden plays. Um, and I find it harder to be stealthy. I feel less of a sense of control. But I mean, I think that suits the game. It is kind of a jazz song of a game. It's, you know, I don't think that MGS2 is at all about being in control. I think MGS2 is about everything spilling out of the corners of your ears. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I, I, I guess I think that some people found MGS2 to be crazy and, and overly ambitious. But these days, most people tell me they prefer 2 to 3. Like most Metal Gear fans that I know um, prefer 2, which I find weird. But yeah. That is I mean, weird. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy, crazy, yeah. crazy people. Yeah, well, you know, I guess if you, if you, I, I get that argument though. Like, if you like mm. the Metal Gear, if you like the Metal Gear story, and if you like the tone and the ambition of Kojima and all of that, you know, there's you could make an argument that it is on show in the most pure way in mm. MGS2. Um, although I think that three is compared to two a model of grace, restraint, and balanced execution. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, I want to come to that. Um, I saw a theory. I can't exactly remember why, and I'm and I'm sorry to whoever mentioned that uh, out there, but I think it was on Neil Gaff somewhere. Um, you say yourself like like MGS two was this kind of like, and I think it's safe to say like MGS two itself was this massively nonsensical game where it was uh, nonsensical. Yeah, that's basically <laughs> the word I can come up with. <laughs> And like Kojima's writing can really get very out of hand, um, and one of the contributors to MGS3's story was Tomokazu Fukushima, and um, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is like this: I saw this theory go about that MGS3's story kind of succeeds in part because of Fukushima's con- contribution to the game, and it kind of. Um, Hall's Kojima's bad aspects of writing mm-hmm. to the game, and it kind of you know keeps keeps it more straightforward. So, like, do do you think like M like MGS three is it a story that is more that is easy to more mix more? Even I'm not making sense now. Is it a game? Is it is is it a story that? makes more sense because of Kojima through 3 because like it does feel like he's had to kind of go in the MGS3 after the backlash of MGS2 with his tail tucked between his legs I don't know him you know I've interviewed him once uh, and I don't know I can't speculate as to who did what on the development team and who was responsible for what um, yeah I don't know I, you know as I said I think that I think that MGS3 is a more balanced story. I could tell you the story of MGS3 in about 15 seconds. I probably couldn't write this minute at all tell you the story of MGS2. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's, I think there's definitely uh, some some balance and some some grace and restraint there. But these game development teams are huge. And, you know, all we can do is kind of speculate about what kind of person Kojima is and what his strengths and weaknesses are. And obviously we see some traits that are common among his games. But, you know... 
I don't even feel super comfortable saying he's good at this, he's bad at that. Because, you know, again, I'm not privy to, you know, how that game was made or who made what decisions um, and and how dictatorial he is as a director. I'm sure there's a lot of people who know that better than me. But, um, yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting question, but I don't know enough about the development team itself to really answer it any further. Ah, fair enough. Um, so, another, uh, kind of another aspect that I'm just really kind of partially at least partakes for the first time is that with one and two like they take place in these kind of suit like near near future pseudo settings of new york or alaska whereas with mgs3 they they they, they take place in 1964 through real life kind of events and and elements like the cold war if i remember correctly every time i've heard him speak uh, about the development of his games i get the impression that Either he's very in love with the technology that he's building on, or his studio is very dependent on their partnership with platform holders. And I think, I think the MGS games have always been important to like the PlayStation hardware strategy. So I think either because of his own wishes or because that's the mandate that he's given, um, each game is sort of designed. And, and honestly, I, I, if I had to guess, I would say that it's his own enthusiasm for technology and what it makes possible, that his frustrations were always with what hardware is capable of. And if it was only capable of more, he could finally tell the story in the great way that he wanted. So I think, like, for example, I have this whole spiel that I make about how Metal Gear Solid 4 is actually a game about the games industry and the PS3 and, like, you know, the promises of a new hardware generation and an aging creator in, in a landscape full of first-person shooters and automated targeting. Um, you know, I, I think that the message and the feel of MGS4 is very much tied to the uncertain fate that the PlayStation 3 had at the time. Um, And when I remember him announcing MGS3, he was really stoked on the foliage. And he was really stoked on the idea that you could take a stealth game outside of a corridor environment. Um, That for him, from a technical standpoint, putting Snake in the Woods with no clear boundaries to the areas was the next challenging and exciting iteration upon a game that had historically taken place in tiny buildings with lots of corners to look around. Um, And I remember the big thing that they were able to do that no video game had done, if I'm not mistaken, at that time was that Snake can crawl along the ground without sort of floating when there's a hill. Like, you know, there'd be that, you know, usually, you know, games, the characters would clip along the ground even if the terrain was uneven. But... uh, the bit about the foliage and the bit about Snake properly being able to crawl on his belly like a snake were things that they were excited about when they were first showing off tech demos or whatever for MGS3. And I think, I wouldn't be surprised if a desire to take advantage of the technology really leads him in regards to choosing the settings. Um, yeah, and, and I really believe that if you pick at a Metal Gear Solid game long enough, you're going to find some kind of critical analysis on technology and hardware and on the difference between games and cinema uh, and what creators are trying to achieve with this sort of second-class hardware or, or, or what was seen as second-class in the 90s and last, last decade. Um, yeah, so yeah, I think, I think, that te- I think his, his passion for tech leads the settings, and, and uh, I think that's one of the neat things about his work because any Metal Gear Solid game cannot help but be an act of criticism about the technology that it's operating with and upon. It has something to say about the technology climate that it exists in. Um, And I think that's always been something that's important to him and that's one of the reasons I like his work.
so moving on to the gameplay side of things. Um, so MGS3 kind of feels like more of an evolution from the gameplay side of things, um, especially because like it, it introduces new um, gameplay mechanics like the camouflage system and yeah. and uh the and the introduction of CQC as well and oh yeah and, and and like i had to play that game like 10 times before i knew how to do CQC at all and i know and and people have a lot of complaints about how nightmarish the mechanics are or how, or they think it's not fun to tediously tweak your camo index every time you move to a different bush but i love that stuff i find it really heady and and exciting like i said it's like playing playing violin a mm. lot of little fingers to pick yeah, I can see what you mean about having to go through it ten times. Yeah, um, it's 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 difficult to pick up on at first. I don't know. It's, yeah, um, it's definitely not a user friendly game or one that I would recommend to people who don't already know how to play video games. You know. Oh yeah. Um, the other big uh, introduction f- uh, for the game was that you kind you had to hunt for food. Like the game forced you to hunt for food to kind of survive. Yeah. Like, this was like core. The, like, yeah, like, this and I think that's another case where he's always thinking about how to defy conventions using technology. Um, you know, like the ration is such a mainstay of the series, and and you know, health man. You know, there, for a lot, there's a lot of people who try to innovate on health health management because it's a thing that we take so easily for granted in games. And I think this was another way of him saying, "What if we remove the traditional parameters on how you move and survive in a game?" Um, historically, up till now, there were rules about how to move and how to survive, and he wanted to use he wanted to take advantage of the tools he had been given to change that. It's worth mentioning as well the um, the food system can be used not just for hunting food, but also the kind of use as a kind of distraction for enemies, or even as a weapon of sorts. Yeah, I mean the best ways to like you know feeding the fear of the poison frogs or yeah. throwing, the mushroom, throwing the mushrooms at Volgan. I can't beat Volgan if I don't have those mushrooms. I'm not that good at the game. <laughs> oh wow, I didn't even know you could do that to Volgan. I mean, like I knew you could do it to the fear, but not Volgan. Oh no, there's um phosphorescent mushrooms that if you throw them. Uh, in the arena, they will draw some of his electricity away from you. Like the first, like let's say you put a mushroom down, the first couple times that he tries to shock you, the mushroom will take it instead. Um, the the luminescent ones um, that you always see throughout the whole game, and you wonder if there's any point to collecting them. But um, yeah, I, if I find myself at that part of the game without those mushrooms, I'm like, ah, fuck it, I'm stopping. Oh, excuse me, can I curse? Yeah, you can curse. <laughs> Sorry. Oh you God, can I'm curse. You can curse. You can curse. It's fine. No, I mean, I mean the first Volgan fight, uh, fight, not the one in the Shaga, but like here when Ocelot's running around upstairs and everything. But yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of tricks you can do, like wearing the Raiden mask during that fight, or um, yeah, there 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 are, and and what I love is that there are so many urban urban legends about other things, you know, as well. Like uh, I don't know what happens if you do this at this point. There's just some really great videos about people just mastering the different exploits that there are uh, that are totally legal and not game breaking you know like totally not yeah. game breaking stuff that you can do that is weird and hilarious um just just basic experimentation yeah there's on one hand it's this incredibly elegant and sincere game about the cold war like i again like i said I, I was like 19 or 20 or something i can't remember but for me it was revelatory that nukes don't go away like these are the type of things that i i didn't learn in school and finding out that these live wires would be thrust into the bowel of our planet until the end of time was was really shocking for me and and so and obviously it has the most transporting and most touching and most sad 
ending sequence of any game that I've ever played. Um, that final fight is so, so good. Um, it's just, it's just amazing. And yet you can also like be running around like half naked in this science base, wearing a rubber mask and like having the British flag painted on your face or something and, and silly things can happen as well. So in a way it doesn't get enough credit as, as a toolbox. Um, one of the things I like about it is I still probably don't know how to do everything that you can do in MGS three. Like it's your favorite game. You didn't know about the mushrooms. I'm sure there's something you could tell me that I didn't know you, you could do. And uh, it just has that degree of depth to it where every time you play it, you find something that you didn't get before. Mm, absolutely. I mean like the, the vault thing was a revelation in itself to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, you touched upon one of the fights just then, but I want to touch upon the Cobra fights as a whole because yeah. the Cobras are just oh, the, be- so good. the best. They're not just boss fights, they're really good puzzles as well. Oh, like in what way? How do you mean? I mean, it's you don't necessarily know, like, you know, like the thing about poisoning the fear until he collapses, ah. like, you know most people might try to just shoot him down, you know, if you don't know, or I don't know. Um, even like the fury is such a pain in my butt, especially if I'm, I'm playing a no kill game. Cause you usually have to uh, hit him in the back, I think. Um, so it's like, you've got to use the grid. It's like, and interestingly, it's like the, um, it's like the bosses from MGS one all over again. Like it's a lot of them have a similar, you know, he uses that layout over again that like the fury is just raging Raven again. So like, if you can use a grid, then you can beat the guy. So it's kind of like, there's certain skill sets that each one requires and, and they're all, you know, really wildly different. Obviously the end is just the end is like the best boss fight ever in a video game. <laughs> ever. Like and that, I mean, speaking of, you know, I keep saying how he subverts the things that we usually expect from action games, that you have a boss fight that you could actually sleep through if you wanted to by moving. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Or, you know, I mean, I obviously, I have to sneak up on him and, and hold him up and, and eat his parrot and do everything. <laughs> I'm not happy unless I get, you know, that total annihilation, no-kill game with him. But, um, yeah, that it's just this pacey and considered and naturally pacey. Like, the more you hunt him and the better you get at finding him, the pace of the fight escalates. And, like, you're following his footprints through the trees in the dark. And it's just, ah, it's just the best, best, best boss fight. Um, but, again, each of them... We're used to the boss fight where the guy appears at one end of the screen and we just throw everything we have at him until we die, until he dies. But um, MGS is actually like the anti-boss fight, you know, like you you will have to find some other way to do it than to throw everything you have at him until he dies. Mm. Um, I wanted to touch upon that because you mentioned um, how they feel like they're more or less an evolution of what was Foxhound and Metal Gear Solid 1. Mm. Um, but oh, like as well as that, there's a certain sense of psychology to these bosses as well or at least to a certain extent like to my count three of them um like the end is like you said one of the best boss fights ever um Mm. because of the endurance of it as well Mm. um when are you going to get to the end uh, yes (laughs) um and and it's not it's not just that as well. Like you have the option to kill him before the big fight down in the warehouse. Yeah, I, I've never been able to do that. I will fully confess, I'm not fast enough. My aim is not good enough. If if I had if I if my aim was better, I would not only use a hush puppy. You know what I mean? Like I mean, I guess no. I mean, I I can do all. Like I've once tried to do a game where I do only hush puppy headshots the whole time, but I'm not that good. Um, but uh, no, I can't kill the end in front of the warehouse. I've never been able to do that. Ah, okay. And also, I wouldn't want to. Like, who wants to skip that boss fight back? You know? Like, ah, I was why? just going to say. Like, like, I want it. His camo is the best camo. Like, the um, photosynthetic regeneration camo and his sniper rifle. Like, 
his the Moisen Nagant or whatever they call it is my favorite weapon in the whole Metal Gear. They have it in three and they have it in four, as far as I know. Um, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't miss the chance to get those things. It would feel like I was cheating. Like it's not just um, the endurance of the end though. Like there's also a psychological aspect to the sorrow as well, because yeah. like the sorrow just guilt trips you so bad, and that's <laughs> and that's and that that feels like the worst thing to say like it doesn't feel strong enough guilt trip in terms of the sorrow but it's yeah. the only thing i can think of in regards to the sorrow well it makes you think about the fact that lives are lost in war and that it's not always like glamorous and i like and interestingly like you don't even really fight the sorrow like all you have to do to survive that fight is to keep going you know what i mean like you can't when it tells you the game is over, you can't accept that and you have to press on. And I think like if you really wanted to get super heady with it and think about the horror of war and loss and stuff, I don't know, the idea that you you know, it only tells you your game is over but your experience hasn't actually ended yet is so creepy when you think about it. Hmm. That hmm. Yeah, if you want to get really psychoanalytical, and again, like I love to get really psychoanalytical on video games. By all I, means. I, I freely admit that I'm sure that a lot of my deep psychoanalysis is not actually well supported by the material that I'm analyzing and it may not necessarily have been the intention of the creator but I have all my crazy theories and, and stuff nonetheless um, one more fight I wanted to point out like like I said there is the, the endurance at the end there is that psychological aspect of the sorrow but when you get to that final boss with the boss um, mm. and, and this may be the wrong she's called, she's called the joy that's right she is called the joy that's right. That's another code name for the boss. But um, that and that's what I wanted to say as well. Like when you fight her, it's almost as if, and this is perhaps the wrong thing to say, or maybe it is the right thing to say. When you fight her, there is almost a certain sense of joy fighting her. Uh, exactly. And so, like, I think if you think about her, she who gave everything, including her reputation and her life for her country and for the people that she thought of as her children, um, what greater joy could there be for her than to be evenly matched by her protege in battle? Like, what would make her happier than to be defeated by someone she loved? You know, like, that's probably, for her, the best possible way for her to go. Like, that's probably exactly what she wanted to have happen, as conflicting and painful as it is for a snake. Like, you know, like, I love... That's that's almost classic. Like, if you... if There's so many... um you know, TV shows or movies or whatever about rivalries between two equally matched people who love each other but are destined to fight. Like, if you look at the anime Cowboy Bebop, Cowboy Bebop, for example, every time Spike has to fight Vicious, they're always smiling. Um, even though they're like mortal em- enemies and are doomed to conquer each other, all of their fight scenes, they're grinning at each other because I think they're just so happy to have met their match. Like, these people who are defined by the fact that they're fighters... What greater pleasure could there be for them to be you know, to be matched by someone you love? It's almost like the next best thing to like a relationship, and um, yeah, I, I just there's there's such a feeling of destiny and completion about that last fight that I, there is some joy in it. I mean, the field is full of it's just all flowers. I mean, they're lilies, but you know, it's all flowers. It's like hmm. almost like you know she's in white and they're surrounded by flowers and it, it's funereal, but. I think it's also, you know, very beautiful, and and uh, I mean, I, I get chills and I get emotional even when I think about it because I just, I think that's just one of the highest points ever in games for me is is doing that while the music swells and while you've learned that you know how to beat her and and 
you know, every time you've encountered her up till now, she's humiliated you, you know, like taken apart your gun or broken your arm or whatever the things that she does to you or you know, <laughs> made sure your eye gets taken out or whatever it is she does to you throughout the game. Mm. But uh, this just complete harmony with like both of them basically are in the same type of clothes like you get your boss camo or whatever like your black boss camo from the science lab and she has the white one and uh ideally you're wearing both of those you know you're each wearing your oppositional colors and the best i mean again the best way to do the boss fight um you know you can hide in the grass and eat and eat the white snakes and keep your life you know you can hide in the grass and just shoot her and and shoot her and shoot her but the way to do it is hand to hand like if absolutely yeah yeah it like the game sort of nudges you in that direction so that, you know, without necessarily punishing you for trying other methods, like I've beaten her without CQC before, but it's like that the game actually sort of nudges you in that direction so that it's preferred that you do the confrontation so directly. It's just awesome. So good. What a great game. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like like you said, the game just wants you to fight her, not with a gun. Like, it's like she'll 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 come at you shooting with her patriot, but like like otherwise, the game just wants you to do it hand in hand with CQC. Um. So yeah, I mean, yeah, that fight, love that fight. I mean, I, I to be honest, I think I love it more than the end fight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I I definitely do too. It's just it's yeah. It usually takes me a few tries because. I don't know if I'm fully committed. Like you, you as the player don't want to do it. And then of course everyone has that moment where you're waiting for him to finish <sighs> her. <laughs> and then like it slowly dawns on you that you have to do it. And it's like it was that game was doing that before it was cool and abused and used to emotionally manipulate people. Like this was a game that conscientiously and intelligently and earnestly wanted the players to feel things without that sort of um smarmy manipulativeness of, of like some of the later choice driven games where you were X all along and you know those uh, surprise reveals that became kind of common and, and tawdry in video games later this was like the this was an early and a pure edition of you have to pull the trigger oh I I I, I, I it's such it's, <laughs> I'm speechless about that scene I don't know what to say about it but, uh, but it is what can you say like I don't know what to say about it. Like, I almost feel like it's my favorite game because, you know, I start out sounding like a very smart and experienced and skeptical games critic. But the more you talk to me about MGS3, even though it was like 20 years ago or whatever, and I'm old now and I should know better, you know, the more you talk to me about it, I'm just like, ah, you know what? It's There's not many games that can reduce me into an emotional fan anymore. But that game will always be able to do that to me. Um, so I wanted to touch upon a, a unique a, a aspect that, uh, again, um, I mentioned Super Bonnerhop's video earlier, but um, he mentioned something really interesting. Um, there's these kind of characteristics um, the, some of the characters in the game have, like three characteristics um, each character has. So I'll name them. Um, Snake, Eva, Volgan, Ocelot who we've not mm-hmm. talked about or talked about at all yet. Oh, Ocelot's uh, my favorite. <laughs> and the boss. So, just to mention them, um, Sn- Snake's three characteristics is he's basically a gun nut, considering he goes off about guns three times in the game. Uh-huh. Eva, because... Or, sorry, yeah, Eva, because... Now, this is an interesting one. Eva's characteristics in that she tries to seduce you three times at key points in the game, but... Furthermore, in her introduction to you, she tries to seduce you um, by unzipping part of her suit. Suggest- I, think, I don't yeah. know if she's trying at that point. I think she's trying to... Well, anyway, I'm uh, going to save it. Continue. Uh, like, 
her characteristics from the, her introduction were that she unzips part of her suit, there's suggestive dialogue, and then she gives Snake a new toy, which is basically a Colt 45, which he is just, you know, swooning himself. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that, it's not at yeah. all suspicious that it's a Chinese model, like, mm. whatever. <laughs> exactly. Oh, wow, I just dawned on that. Oh, yeah, wow, for foresight. She's like, wow, this is, this is from China. Where'd you get this? She's like, oh, I don't know. I'm not a spy, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is an interesting thing, because... Um, foresight. Now that you've taught, now that you've uh, reminded me about that Colt forty five coming from China, foresight. I don't, that, I don't know if that's the gun she gave him. Oh, the oh, gun that she had, which he commented on. Uh, I can't remember. Ah, okay. Ah. He had something like that. Um, but there's a there is an aspect that Kojima does really well with his games, which is foresight, and yeah. that he kind foreshadowing. of ah, right, yeah, foreshadowing, and um. In MGS2, like to kind of give you an example, um, like one one example in mind is the ninja. It's Olga, and mm. the music that plays when this time, yeah, yeah, when when um you first, when you first meet Olga is riding uh on the helipad, yeah. like that's in the MGS2. yeah, and that's the same music that plays um when the ninja comes in to save you from Ocelot when you're saving the hostages or when you're knocked out uh, heading in the Arsenal gear. Mm-hmm. So I think that foreshadowing is one of the great things um, Kojima does really well with his games. I agree. Um, so yeah, sorry, I was I was off point there. Um, <laughs> an- another freeze characteristic, um, Volgan, um, and that's how sadistic he is because he's seen torturing people in the game three times. He loves hurting people, yeah. He does. Um, and also a lot, um, his characteristic is that uh, he cares for his countrymen because he remarks it in the game three times. Oh, it would be that he likes to show off. Mm. But I almost think, like, I, I Ocelot is the guy who you can never quite pin down because whatever Ocelot is doing, Ocelot always knows what he's doing. I feel like his gun never jams by accident. Mm. I mean, as sweet as it is to think of a story whereby Ocelot became who he was because of Solid Snake's father, um, if if Ocelot had wanted to terminate Big Boss, he probably could have at several points. So, I don't know, I just feel, I I feel like Ocelot doesn't have accidents, he just pretends he does. Mm. Uh, And the final characteristic is the boss, because basically before you fight her in that field at the end of the game, or towards the end of the game, she basically beats you up. Three times. Three times, yeah. So there's these kind of freeze. Freeze. Exactly, rules of freeze. That's yeah. Uh, well, I had noticed those before. That's awesome. Mm, um, I hadn't really noticed it myself until I I watched the Super Pony Hop video. So um, yeah. Uh, oh, I, I better watch that. I really yeah. need to. <laughs> yes, absolutely. There is a segment that I, however, want to dedicate to um, 
a particular character and of course we have like it is the boss mm-hmm. um because when before MDS3 we always kind of assumed oh MD, the series is kind of being around big boss and how he kind of you know kickstarted everything uh later down the line but of course as MDS3 pointed out it's a the boss she is the true linchpin to the series timeline not big boss yeah. and she's the mother of everything she yeah mother of special forces she's basically also lots mother mm-hmm. <laughs> um yeah they say that they say that um or they, 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 yeah they imply well they don't straight out say it's also but they imply it that is heavily implied fans mostly agree with that um she is absolutely incredibly strong as a character like just yeah. straight up incredible as a character. I mean, like, she is more or less the reason why I love this game as much as I do. But she was a cool woman before pe- before it was cool, before people knew that... You know, I, I don't think until I saw her did I realize that the portrayal of other uh, women heroes in video games was comparatively feeble. Um, you know, I, I didn't think a lot about that when I was younger. Uh, mm. But... The reason she's so awesome is because I'd never seen a character like that be a woman before ever in games. So it's like, yeah, it was it was very definitive for me. I can't say enough good things about her. Hmm. Um, and um, it was an interesting uh, tidbit that I found out last year. Um, game, when Game Informer did uh, its coverage on Ground Zeroes and the Phantom Pain, um, hmm. they interviewed Yuji Shinkawa. Um, mm-hmm. who, of course, we all know yeah. as the infamous uh, art director and basically Katima's right-hand man. Um, and he cited um, the boss's kind of um, uh, inspiration as the actress Charlotte Rampling. Um So I was, I was fascinated about um, her kind of inspiration, about her, what inspired her look, basically. And yeah, I, I, that's interesting. I'd never heard that before. Um, like, and Sinkawa doesn't typically try and think of actors or actresses in, in, in his creating process coming up with char- or, uh, kind of coming up with um, how, how a character looks. So that was an interesting aspect to it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, uh, that's another thing that I hadn't, hadn't read before. So she's basically seen as a future main character for the series. Um, like, even, even when Metal Gear Rising was re-announced from Platinum, like, Kojima himself said, like, he, like, MGS5 was initially going to be based on the boss, on the Normandy land and mentioned at the end of the game. Um, do you think, like, is that a game you would absolutely want to see? I mean, like, it's c- certainly a game I want to see, but with caveats. I kind of, like, want to, yeah, I don't know. I, I've not actually, I haven't played any of the new Metal Gear stuff, honestly, because I don't know it would just suck too much if I couldn't relate to it anymore or if it had gone in a direction that I didn't agree with. You know what I mean? And um, there's been a lot of really fraught conversation about how he does women characters lately. And it's like, well, just because you can do the boss doesn't mean, you know, doesn't mean you're really good at this. I don't know. Like, uh, mm, yeah. I would, I, I'm, I'm sort of happy with what exists and I wouldn't say that I actively want any more Metal Gear games of any kind because what if there was a game about a bo- about the boss and it was not good or it was like sexist or something you know what I mean like that, that's terrible that's my exact worry as to why I don't want to see a, a boss led MGS game like for the most part I really want to see it but now there's that worry after everything that's happened in Ground Zeroes yeah I wrote an article like three or four years ago being like please don't make MGS 5 like I was already like okay we're good don't make any more <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah no I I'm ambivalent. I can't imagine that I wouldn't try it if it happened, but, you know, 
I, I relate less and less to the franchise as I get older and as the franchise goes in new and different directions. I, I find myself less and less connected to it. What else did you like about MGS3 that we've not touched upon tonight? Hmm. Uh, I mean, I feel like we've gotten to say everything, right? Like, what am I missing? Hmm. Um, I love how I love how it controls. I love this. I love the stealth. I love the no kill games. I love the bosses. I love the boss. I love uh, the eating and the foliage, and uh, the zen nature of it, and the sense of perfect control that you have when you are completely hidden and some soldier is coming towards you, and you know you're going to hit him in the head. I love that feeling. That he's like he's like ten feet away. He can't see me, and I have the leisure to casually just pop him in the eye <laughs> um what are the aspects that you didn't like about it surely there has to be something it's not a perfect game by any stretch yes it is oh come <laughs> on uh, no it's not a perfect game but i like everything about it all right <laughs> i like everything about it there isn't anything that i don't like sometimes the codec conversations go on too long but i wouldn't change a thing i wouldn't change it like it's not perfect but i like it how it is i'll accept that as a flaw um, uh, and I would prefer playing the um, subsistence version because I like having a little more control over the camera. Ten years on, what is the legacy of Metal Gear Solid Three? And like we've sat here babbling for the past hour, more or less, just talking about how much we love this game, and to kind of give some context as to why I love this game. Um, Ten years ago, I bought. Well, not I didn't buy this game, but like my mum, like let me get this game. She actually gave me the day off the, uh, from school to play this game at launch. But, <laughs> Your um, And more importantly, it made me want to write about games. Um, it, it, Metal Gear Solid 3, I want to write something about Metal Gear Solid 3, but more importantly, I want to write something about Metal Gear Solid 3 for Eurogamer, and I say Euro, and I say Eurogamer especially because it, if it wasn't for MGS3, if it wasn't for Eurogamer, I wouldn't be writing. So for for that in itself, it's a very special game. But it, recently, it's become a lot more special because a couple of months ago, um, my mum fell ill, and mm. and um, uh, while she was still well enough, like she, uh, I was playing along with the game on my Vita. Um, yeah. Just, just to kind of you know help um, with that kind of, um, just to kind of help with what was going on. Um, uh, soon afterwards, um, unfortunately, my mum actually kind of passed away. So, I'm sorry uh, for your loss. Um, thank you. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that te- before everything that happened, um, it was already a special game. But now, in in the light of everything that's happened to um, me in these past few months, um. um it's 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 a more special game, so yeah. that that's why it's special for me. But so because it's about it's about motherhood or it's about legacy. Yeah, bit of both. Yeah. Um, what what do you think? Like, what is the game's legacy for you, Lee? MGS three was the game that made me want to start writing too. And even though I've written about it at major gaming venues numerous times over the years, 
Um, and the recent Vice piece I did was about the closest I've ever come to getting it right. I still always feel like I never quite say everything. I can never quite put into words how I feel. I never quite get that sense of complete mastery over my feelings or my thoughts to do with that game. And um, yeah, I guess as hard, it's sometimes hard being a woman who writes about games, especially from an unconventional uncon- perspective and like with progressive tendencies. And the fact that I've never solved that problem, that what to say about MGS3 problem, kind of reminds me that there's still a lot of love and beauty and mystery in games for me. Um, I can't quite put my finger on it, and I can't quite make sense of it, why I love this game so much. And for me, that's almost like a good thing. It reminds me why there's more work to be done for me in games and, and elsewhere. time of recording this episode, it was a week out from GDC, which is happening right now by the time this is published. So Lee had pre-show stuff to attend to, which didn't give us ample time to do a proper honourable mentions and hawkish stuff segment. Nonetheless, Lee's honourable mentions were Castlevania Symphony of the Night and Silent Hill 2. And speaking of, Lee has just published a Silent Hill inspired story, Mona, which you can find the link to if you're listening to this via YouTube or on johnnycone.net. You can find the rest of her work at LeeAlexander.net and follow Lee on Twitter at LeeAlexander. Thanks for listening to my favourite game. And happy birthday Metal Gear Solid 3. You have no idea how special of a game you truly, truly are. Next week, Andrew Smith on The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past. Until next week, bye bye.